This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. Hi, this is Ashley Clayton Blunt, and I'm here with Samuel Elliott to talk about my new psychological thriller, Dark Mode, on one of the best writing podcasts around, the Right Way Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for that introduction to tonight's episode there, Ashley Collegian Blunt, and hello to everyone out there in digital land listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program. You will note, for those that are eagle-eyed, voracious devourers of the Right Way Podcast Program, that this is actually the first, even though we're in March now, this is the first of the episodes of the show for this particular year. It's been a bit of a whirlwind uh, in my own sort of writing vocation sort of uh, endeavours there, and uh, yeah, this is the first guest that I've had, and what a wonderful guest to commence the program with this the program's lineup for 2023 by having the lovely Ashley Collegian Blunt on the program to discuss with me her book Dark Mode. Uh, it's actually the third time, third time that I've spoken to Ashley Collegian Blunt about her work. Uh, the first time was uh, prior to the when the podcast wasn't even a twinkle in my eye for Compulsive Reader. I discussed with Ashley her debut sort of uh, book My Name is Revenge which was comprised of a novella and sort of a series of essays and creative uh, non-fiction pieces as a delight to talk to Ashley about her book there My Name is Revenge and then later on we discuss uh, her publication of her next book which was How to Be an Australian which came out with the firm press a couple of years ago uh, I think Ashley was also one of the first people on the podcast one of the first guests but uh, anyway I did rest because I was uh so delightfully going down a bit of a trajectory, a bit of a walk down memory lane with uh, my experiences with talking to the absolute delightful Ashley Collagen Blunt. But this book is very different to her last. This is a long form or full length uh, novel for one. This is a thriller called Dark Mode, which is set within uh, 2017 sort of uh, Enmore area, which is an area, area I know that's close to Ashley's heart as a uh, those in the know would have uh, known about from her How to Be an Australian Time is one of the first places in which she lived at in Australia after moving here from Canada. But anyway, this is a much different uh, and more experience, albeit the inner west, to the one in which Ashley sort of found herself in when she first moved here, and that it's centered around Reagan Carson and opens with her literally stumbling into a spider web, and then from there, an even more grisly scene, which she instinctively backs away from without alerting the police to her sort of uh, the find of a kind of a ritualistically slain person. And then that's obviously probed the question as to why she would feel the need to run away from the scene and then you go give an uh, anonymous tip off and then obviously we hear about that we slowly learn bit by bit about this uh, sort of pervasive presence uh, amorphous presence of another someone from her past which also serves to explain as to why she is off all social medias etc as well so this sort of uh, presence that's dogged her from her youth and carried through into uh, later in life, into her contemporary life as we meet her. Uh, and then from there, sort of a series of events and murders and the body counts keep rising. Uh, uh, kind of a sort of tiptoeing around because I don't want to kind of tell too much about this ever twisty, twisty than a bag of twisties plot. I'd rather you kind of heard about it from Ashley herself. So without further ado, I'd like you all to give a big digital round of applause to Ashley Collegian Blunt discussing with me her thriller novel, Dark mode. Ashley, thank you so much for joining me again on the Right Way Podcast program this evening. How are you doing? Yeah, pretty good, Samuel. How are you? I'm so good. I'm so good. I'm so good. 
I'm so good. And I was going to, I've gotten a little bit ahead of myself, but I was going to thank you because I'm in the acknowledgements of the, of the book and I was really touching yes. and I was really touched. Like, I don't, I don't know how many times that's happened. So that's uh, very, very lovely. So thank you so much for that. You're very welcome. Awesome. You know, the question I always like to start with actually, and tonight is not going to be any different in terms of that. So I want to know where the idea for dark mode first originated from, because in the acknowledgements you mentioned, I think it was uh, men who hate women by Laura Bates. Yes. Yes. Well, it might be a good start, but anyway, I wanted to hear it from you as to where Dark Modes first started. So, yeah, it had a number of starting places. I mean, I think really where it really originated was that I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome in 2017 and I was very sick. And I spent a couple of years largely in bed, not entirely, but most of the time, and was l- listening to just hundreds of hours of true crime podcasts and watching true crime documentaries and every single episode of Law and Order SVU uh, in order. So I think I've always been a, a crime fiction fan and I've always been interested in true crime, but I really ended up dedicating a couple years of my life to it. So it was sort of like an informal criminology study. And that's kind of when I was like, I think maybe I have enough information about you know how crime happens and how the justice system works and how crime is investigated, that I can actually start a crime novel. So that was really the beginning of it. And then with Dark Mode specifically, there was a, there's a particular twist. And so for people who have read the book, there's a moment where the main character knocks on a door about two thirds of the way through. And the person who answers is not the person that she's expecting to be there. And there's a whole thing that's happening. And that thing that's happening, and I won't ruin it for anyone who hasn't read it. Uh, it was a twist that I was like, you know, I, I've never seen this before that I know of in in crime fiction. And I was like, I wonder if I could build out the story from there. So that was really where the story started. And then different components of it. Uh, Men Who Hate Women by Laura Bates is a nonfiction book about effectively the manosphere. So these different groups of men who have found each other online and basically proliferate this extremely misogynistic ideology in different ways. And she really... Uh, analytically looks at how it's impacting our society, like how these ideas filter through into our media and our politics. And it's it's a very scary book. Mm. So that was definitely one of the things I used. Yeah, wow, okay. So so from there, that was the sort of genesis of what became Dark Mode. But yeah. one element that kind of runs throughout actually done very well in terms of the paranoia that one uh, sort of can have their life completely derailed by through meeting someone through chance, be you know, MSN messenger, that was kind of like a nostalgic thing for me, but I, you know, I didn't experience, <laughs> didn't experience this, but I just want you to talk a little bit about this sort of all consuming sort of paranoia that can come about whereby so much that the first instinct that one might encounter, even after they walk through a literal spider's web and then discovered a more grisly scene, their first instinct is not to alert police or that they can't uh, all bear onto their own identity so what is this sort of uh, paranoia that can completely derail someone's life like that so much so they don't even trust their friends or the police? Yeah, great question. I was really keen on flipping that crime trope because it's a really common trope. I mean, after watching all those episodes of Law and Order SVU, mm. really common crime trope that like we open on random people finding a body and then it's a jump cut to the police are on scene. And the implication is always that like people obviously call the police when they find a body. I mean, that's what you would do hopefully but I wanted to have someone who found a body and this is chapter one she main character Reagan finds a body and she does not call the police and she's got very specific reasons for that and she's basically had trust 
problems with 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 people that mm. she has met and then with the police themselves because there were times in her life when she was young and she went to the police for help and the police did not did not help her and what they told her was um you know if you don't want stuff like this to happen really you'll just stay off the internet yep and the first time I submitted that, like the excerpt that has a police officer actually saying that to her um, in an earlier version to my writer's group, one of the guys in my writer's groups like sort of circled it and said, well, this is totally unrealistic. Of course, the police wouldn't say that, which I thought was really interesting because like in a lot of those true crime cases that I've listened to, that's exactly what the police say, say to people. And they also mm. say like, you know, it's starting to change now. But for years and years, like if you had problems online and you went to the police, they just were not equipped. Like they often didn't even understand what you were talking about. Like yep. in terms of like, this is happening on Reddit or this is happening on Twitter. They just didn't know what those things were. So mm. they can't, they were completely unprepared to help people on those spaces. I guess it was, yeah, like you mentioned, because it was just so in its infancy that you, and you particularly if you weren't on the computer yourself in that sort of way or have any sort of computer savvy knowledge, then uh, it would be so easy to kind of dismiss it or trivialize what someone's coming to you about. Tell me a little bit about Ashley in terms of having someone sort of this, this almost like a specter-like figure, because I think there was one, you actually mentioned one of the quotes that I was going to bring up, because I was going to bring up the, if you don't want this sort of stuff happening, then stay off the internet kind of thing. I'm paraphrasing that a little bit. But you mentioned early on as well, Reagan lives on the third floor, I believe, and she's still, you know, really vigilant about locking everything. She's, I think, triple deadbolt on the door. Yep. There's all these sort of elements, but there's this almost like specter-like figure kind of hanging over the entire time. And I think the quote that I was trying to get to is, it's something like, he could be everywhere, he could be anywhere. And I wanted to, for you to talk about having this sort of like figure sort of attached to you, even if it's someone that you haven't seen in years, how that can sort of... um derail your life essentially and how that can be carried around by someone after you know a sort of encounter in a formative year yeah so reagan's got someone in her past and this is the other component of your earlier question is like you know what's what is preventing her from calling the police mm. reagan's got someone in her past really changed the way she sees people the way she understands her personal safety because this person um basically affected her personal safety to the point where she ended up she didn't she left the country because she mm. just could not get away from this person and this this is some, one of the things like if your dog is enough about finding someone you can find them if you have the skills and you have the you know the willingness to do that and one way to do that is digitally mm. but uh, there was there you know I did a lot of research into stalking cases as well and there's one stalking case where and I added this detail into the book um this person said they had moved uh from a share house to somewhere else trying to escape someone and the person they were trying to escape went to their former share house and paid one of their you know pe- people they'd been living with to give them their new address mm-hmm. so like they didn't even have to go online to find that um but this is there is there's this flip side where like some people don't have an online presence and um i was looking up someone i knew in high school who's you know my age like uh late 30s and this person should have an internet presence like this person should have traces on the internet and it was one of those things where i was just kind of like offhandedly like oh i wonder what he's up to and at first i was like oh that's kind of weird like it doesn't have any social media that i can find and like and then i started like really digging into it i was like what is going on like is did this person join like the cia like they had no presence that I could find whatsoever. And so I got to the point where I was searching obituaries. I'm like, clearly this person is dead. And 
like, how do you not have any online presence? Yeah. Anyways, a couple of years later, they appeared on LinkedIn because they were looking for a job. So still alive, but very strange. Speaking of that, I mean, again, another theme that's been running throughout um, dark mode in terms of uh, being offline or being off the grid. And I felt that there was kind of like this exploration of, uh, it, you know, the, seemingly the impossibility of doing so because, Obviously, Reagan's kind of managed to successfully do it for a while, but then I think Emil is the first one to suggest that it would be good for uh, Voodoo to have sort of an online presence and then uh, obviously events with Bryce. And I wanted you to kind of like discuss with me as to your what sort of ensnared your imagination and what you wanted to explore with kind of how difficult it is for someone. Like you mentioned, it's funny that you anecdotally mentioned um, someone from your, your past in terms of trying to find them. But I did wonder if that sort of captured your imagination, Ashley, in terms of how sort of uh, seemingly difficult it is for someone to stay off social media and smart technology and how much sort of society pushes them towards doing that as in joining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because I think one of the reasons this book is set in 2017 is I did feel like it was kind of the last year that you could get away with not having a smartphone. Like mm. my husband didn't have a smartphone at the start of 2017. And by the end of 2017, he did not because he wanted one, but because sort of peer pressure had kind of forced him. Like um, there were certain people that he knew that were basically like, I didn't, this, they didn't say this, but this was their attitude it was like, well, if you're what's you're not on WhatsApp, then we're just not going to invite you out because yep. it's too, it's difficult. It's, like, it's too hard. Like we just want to send it to a WhatsApp group and you're not in that. So I guess we won't invite you to anything. And it was such like, it's such a weird attitude to start excluding people on the basis of what technology they're using. And it, it speaks to what convenience seeking creatures we really are. Um, but I, I wanted to put in the thing about the banking as well. Cause you mentioned Emil, who is her, who is her loan manager at the bank. And, uh, I like the way certain institutions force you to use their technology. Mm. And one of the issues I had, you know, I did a master's degree at Macquarie University in 2016, 2017. And, you know, I had to use my Macquarie email address, except I had so many problems with my Macquarie email address that I missed all kinds of important emails. And you would say, oh, just set up a forward. Trust me, there was so many tech issues. It was a huge disaster. So I think it's I think it is interesting the way where the institutions force us into using certain tech. And also one other interesting thing on that topic is that initially when I first wrote the book, Reagan did not have any kind of cell phone. She had a landline at home and she had a landline at her business. And my writer's group was like, no, she's got to have a cell phone. It's 2017. And I was like, no, she doesn't. She's got two phones. What are you talking about? And then, and then my publisher was like, She's got to have a cell phone. So it's, it's apparently unacceptable either in 2017 for someone to not have a cell phone. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you know, it's like these arguments could be made for either, either, either or. But um, yeah, I thought, I mean, even just having the phone that she she did, like the not smoke, I think it was, I think it was described by someone within the um, Darknet sort of cabal um, as being a flip phone or something. They, they, they said it. Was, they said it in a brutal way than that, but they described it as some, some sort of flip phone or something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, she ended up getting. She. I had her have just just a phone that she could use for emergencies. So I, I was like, okay, she is the kind of person who would want to be able to get help if she needed it. You know. Yep. So fine. She has a she has a cell phone that that has no internet connectivity. 
What was it like writing um, a story kind of set around and more in the inner west there, actually? Because the last time I read something written by you that was set in a setting like that, it was very different because it was obviously much more <laughs> positive, less intense sort of um, killers, killers, multiple male killers uh, on the trail uh, describing when you first came to Australia in um, How to Be an Australian. So what was that like, writing it in this sort of fictional capacity with uh, all these sort of uh, grisly goings-on? Well, I think... Part of that came out of the fact that I wrote the majority of this book in lockdown during the mm. pandemic. So, and I, at that time we had a little, we were still living in the inner west. I had a little dog and I was walking my little dog every morning and I was walking him through these laneways and thinking about, oh, you know, like there were little alcove kind of things. And I was like, man, if someone put a body there, like mm. I could potentially like, overnight, like if someone died there, I'd potentially be the first person just did find that body definitely so that was i think it was the a, a result of being trapped in that space that my imagination was going to those those places um and and then having all those crime stories in my head because how to be a strain came out of i started writing after i'd been here five six years and had spent a lot of time thinking about how do i develop an australian identity and then I, you know, got citizenship and I wrote the book. Then I got sick and I was in a very different headspace. One of the things about how the Australian is, um, there's a lot of humor in it, as you mentioned, very different tone. I was also doing stand-up comedy when I first started writing how to be Australian. When I got sick, it like ruined my comedic voice. Like I can't write comedy anymore. Like, I still have my sense of humor, but mm-hmm. my, I can't, I can't write comedy. So all the comedy in that book was written before I got sick and all this sort of more like heartfelt stuff was developed after I got sick. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. But it's, it's, it was kind of, I guess, I guess, um, you know, there's always sort of like a seemingly like a natural progression to things and it kind of timely suited what you were going for with dark mode. I guess it would be a little bit more incongruous and probably inappropriate if it was sort of jaunty <laughs> a little bit, you know, kind of like zingers and stuff like that peppered into it, given the, the serious subject nature. Subject nature. It, it would be a very different book, yes. <laughs> yeah, very much so. I was, I was interested to think, uh, to see what you think, actually, because I mean, the story itself, um, the setting of the location is strong, and I mean, I'm I'm living that area, so like that's that's something that you know I can easily envision. I wonder if you thought though that it was something that because it was just the the themes themselves are sort of pervasive within contemporary society, also within 2017. I really appreciate you explaining the the era because I was going to ask you about that as well. But if this is a story, I feel, and I wanted to see what you thought if it was something that is kind of could be interchangeable in other sort of locations uh, and sort of eras within the smartphone genre onwards, because it's just something that's just so so applicable, uh, unfortunately, in the kind of scariest way. And I guess that's why there's been so much praise all over there, studying the covers and the back cover, um, talking about how scary it is. Uh, yes, definitely. I think, I mean, this book engages with sort of the, the technology of the dark web mm. and could be set, you know, any time from when the dark web was first developed about 20 years ago by, by the U.S. Navy, which is its own interesting story. Um, but I think when writing specifically about technology, what I found was you really had to pin it to a year. Because if you didn't yep. pin it to a year, it's sort of like, well, what could smartphones do at that time? And like mm. what, what, could, what social media were people using at that time? So I felt, I felt like nailing it to a specific year when I was dealing so specifically with technology was important. The other couple of reasons I chose 2017 were that it was the 70th anniversary of the murder of Elizabeth Short, which is a, a bit another big aspect of the book and, and bringing all that true crime history into the book. 
So I felt like this particular killer um, who's killing women in the same way as Elizabeth Short was murdered and, and posed, which is um, specific to what I'm trying to do in terms of looking at misogyny in the book. Um, so I felt like he would, you know, the 70th anniversary would be a big deal for that mm. specific his mindset. And then the other thing that sort of worked in terms of looking at misogyny as well is, of course, that was the year that Trump was inaugurated. Trump, yep. January when Trump was inaugurated. And so that's just sort of happening in the background. Um, but in Men Who Hate Women by Laura Bates, one of the things she looks at is how Trump being elected was something that really encouraged these attitudes yep. of misogynist online. Yeah, very much so. I mean, undeniably, and I did wonder about that as well. I'm, I'm interested to hear in terms of, I like you mentioning uh, that 2017 was kind of this sort of like last uh, hooray era in terms of you didn't have to have smartphones, like you mentioned with your husband. But um, I thought that the Trump sort of angles was all the, um, that sort of going on in the background was really well done as well, because it was kind of like, I guess the best way to have those sort of real life events is to not sort of beat the reader over the head. They're just sort of gone on. They mentioned in passing, but then they contextualize what's going on. And like you said, I mean, it kind of like embodied that um, sort of real toxic misogynistic sort of attitude that was zeitgeist at the time, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like there's, there's transcripts, like, and I include a fictionalized version of that in, in, in the book, but there are transcripts, uh, of misogynists online talking about how they feel that Trump being elected you know, supports their worldview effectively. Yep. Like they're they're right, quote unquote. Actually tell me about um when we went to that get together, you briefly mentioned that you had you had done some training, you'd actually gone onto the dark web. Because I myself uh have not uh not gone onto the dark web. I don't even know if it if it looks dark. I don't think it I think that I think that's a common misconception that it actually looks dark. But you had someone like a a person that was really kind of a bit of a pundit when it came to the dark web stuff and they showed you a tutorial and sort of took you around. Didn't that, didn't that happen when you tell me about that? Yes. Yes. Yep. So there's a journalist in Melbourne, Eileen Armsby, and she's she's a dark web journalist, which I think is just the coolest thing. And she sort of, it wasn't like someone told her, hey, you should you should become a dark web journalist. It was like when she like started researching the dark web and pitched some articles on it and then people were just like, we want you know, newspaper editors were like, we want more articles about this because no one else is writing about this. So she sort of mm. carved that path out for herself. And so the very best use of Zoom I have ever seen was during lockdown, she ran a workshop and it was, you know, it was a uh, dark web workshop and it was just like, she took us on Zoom and took us on a tour of the dark web. So yeah, well. we got to see websites where guns were for sale and websites where drugs were for sale. And she sort of talked through how the dark web works. It was really, really fascinating. And so from that, I then went and figured out how to go on the dark web myself, which was a very different experience because with the dark web, there's no dark Google. So yep. there are sort of sites that sort of work like search engines, but very few dark websites are indexed. Mm. which means that just like not listed in search engines. So search engines can't find them. Um, it is dark though, because, okay. because okay. of the, the, I mean, not necessarily, but because of the layers of encryption, a lot of the websites are just like black background with white font. You're right. Like, okay. You're right. So, and, it, and there's very few graphics because everything's really, really slow. Like this is the thing about the dark web. And I think there's two reasons people don't use it. Uh, in everyday life. One is that um, it, it does require more technical skill. Yep. 
and then the other thing is it's really, really slow. So even if you have the technical skill, you're not going to use it unless you feel the need for that extra security because it's just too slow. But there are sites on the dark web, like bbc.com has a mirror site on the dark web. And that's because the dark web isn't just used for crime. Uh, for example, people in uh, countries where the internet is censored, they can go on the dark web and then access things like bbc.com. Uh, if you're in China, things like Certain things are blocked. You can access them on the dark web potentially. So that's that is another use of the dark web. And BBC looks on the dark web like it does. Yeah, crazy because it was it was it was it was originally created. My knowledge is pretty limited, but it was created by the CIA. Is the U.S. Navy? Re- US, U.S. Navy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So actually, did, did that mean that you embarked on this kind of um, sort of uh, pilgrimage through these incredibly unholy lands and kind of trawling through sort of. Um, what are they called? I wrote them down. Was it men going their own way? I don't know if that's a real thing. It sounds very real. It is real, um, yeah. Okay, that's a real one. Okay. Um, because yeah. that sort of stuff, because some of those those convos, I'm sure that you must have written them and gone, My God, I'm a good writer up, and then maybe have to go and have a shower or something like that to that just that <laughs> right level of the similitude to be like, you Oh God, what am I doing? You know what's really funny is um all of those groups that I mentioned in the book are real, pickup artists, uh, men going their own way, incels, uh, they're all they're all real. Every, all of that stuff that I mentioned is real. Mm. Um, I think people always ask me about writing in that voice, yep. in the voice, in the voice of extreme misogynists. And I actually found it really easy, maybe because I'd just done so much research that it was in my head. But I think also it's very one note. So it's yep. like, it's this horrible, horrible voice, but it's also just not hard to mimic because it's, yep. there's no nuance to it. There, there's a much, there was a scene that I found much harder and it still makes me squirm and again i'm not going to give any spoilers for people who haven't read it but it's you'll know the scene i'm talking about if you have read the book it's the scene there's a scene where reagan is in her mother's garden and she's helping her mother with some gardening and then she gets a specific email and that scene i i I still like it still makes me go like oh i can't deal with it yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, I know I know exactly what you're talking about. So, yeah, interesting. And I, I feel that like it's interesting that you mentioned in terms of the one noteness of of people like that making it so much easier to write. But at the same time, my God, especially because it's just it just it just read as so believable. Because I, I'm sure that's just the the kind of stuff, unfortunately, that there's it would just be an absolutely be so many corners See, of the told, internet would be lush that. I told my mother because the book is dedicated to my parents, oh, but I also. My mom, I was like, you can't read it though. Like they've, they've read, you know, my other books and they're very proud of me, but I was like, you just can't read this book because I just don't want my mom to think about me writing that stuff. Yeah. But then you've gone down the <laughs> rabbit hole of the creativity. So you kind of got to do it. You got to like write, you know, the only way out is through. So you got to do it. What's a void? What is that? What is that? Uh, female humanoid. And again, I didn't make, I didn't make any of that stuff up. That's okay. an actual term that, that these groups use to dehumanize women. Right. Okay. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we've talked a little bit about the, this sort of, um, you know, cabal of misogynists that are on the, the dark web there and along with uh, other sort of uh, normie uh, web web pages and, and sites. I want to talk a little bit about victim blaming as well, because that's something that kind of ran throughout too. And it was exemplified a few different times. There was one time, I think, when Terry was quick to mention that men get killed more than women. Uh, that was mm-hmm. sort of dismissive. Dismissive. I mean, there was another, I think it was, it was Oliver, uh, I think, not a journalist, was he? But he mentioned he sort of uh, challenged um, Reagan at one point about like what would you have done differently in those sort yeah. of situations. 
And yeah. then there was there was a final one I wanted to mention as well. There was more. There was there was victim blaming that kind of went on all the time. And I wanted to see from you if you think this is something that I mean, like that's kind of seminal in terms of that's that's sort of always been around whenever there's been that whenever there's been victims, particularly when it's a, when it's a female victim that's been a victim of of male violence or male aggression. There's the there's the victim blaming angle. Do you think that that's something that's that's just as pervasive with this sort of um kind of you know subculture that's emerged of this these online sort of misogynistic groups, even though they're still relatively in their infancy in terms of dark web? Is that something that's just as pervasive as it always was? Actually, what do you reckon? I think, I mean, more and more uh, police departments have sort of a special victims unit kind yep. of not approach at least training. Mm. So that I think there is a movement towards doing better by victims uh but in the media definitely there's still there's still you know really really clear victim blaming that Mm. that looks at women's behavior that um implies that you know women need to change what they're doing in order to keep themselves safe Mm. put the responsibility back on them that um statement you mentioned that reagan's father um stepfather makes Mm. about men being killed more than women that is true men men are murdered more than women but it's often because they they have put themselves in a situation, yep. as in like they've picked a fight or they've gotten involved with some so sort gendered of violence. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Whereas women often like the most commonplace women are murdered is in their own homes, yep. like by their partners. Um, so it's, they're very different situations that we're, we're talking about. Um, so yeah, I think in some ways things are slightly better depending on, you know, what police department and what police officer you might end up dealing with in a, in a given situation. Um, Cause it's really interesting. If you look at the history of criminology, like if you go back, you know, not that many decades, the mm. concept of a victim didn't exist. Like the police didn't think about victims. They just thought of witnesses. Like mm. the only focus was on the criminal. And so like, if you were a victim, they saw you as a witness who could then provide testimony but they, their interest wasn't in like, oh, like, are are you okay? And what can we do to help you? So that that is a that is a trend that has changed over time, uh, and is continuing to change. But I think it's I think it's more the media that's the issue. Were you just going to say something else? It looks like you're going to say something else. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I was just going to kind of still following on from that. It was something that I don't see really explored enough, and it was kind of at the tail end of the book. So I'm going to walk. I'm going to kind of approach this really, really carefully. But it was. It was kind of after killers have been identified and there's a sort of section about, uh, albeit this theme that runs through this section where it talks about how uh, how could you not know as a loved one? Mm-hmm. How could you not know? And I think that that's something that kind of gave me a little bit of, um, uh, when you talk about Kevin sort of energy a little bit there, albeit a very different sort of context and you know setting. But I want you to talk a little bit about that actually because obviously that's you know intrigued you a bit in terms of that. It's a very different sort of, and I think that kind of um, oft underreported type of victim blaming is to, because it's obviously family members of perpetrators of victims as well, and it's particularly when it's when it's high, pro- high profile, grizzly, you know, you know, steeped in infamy, they kind of are, are maligned just by proxy of being related to that person, and yeah, those sort of questions come about. Tell me a little bit about that and how that sort of intrigued you, and was that something that kind of just arose from your imagination, or was that something that you sort of found within your kind of extensive research? Uh, that is something I found in my research that I find really, really fascinating, and there's a book, a nonfiction book called A Mother's Reckoning, and the name of the woman who wrote it is going to escape me, but her son was one of the two Columbine killers. Right, okay. 
walked to high school and shot up their peers. And she wrote this book years, years and years after after the Columbine events. And uh, basically said, our teenager was involved in our family life. We had family dinners. We had family movie nights. You know, we did all of these things together. Um, he had had a few little issues with the law mm. in the year leading up to Columbine. And they had done everything that they thought was necessary to help him address that. Um, you know, he was in this police program to help get young uh, boys mainly, you know, off the criminal track and, you know, into, into productive society and all of this. And so basically her point was that you can never know what is in another person's mind, even mm. if you gave birth to that person, like, and have lived with them every day of their life. And she said, as she said, a lot of people reject that. A lot of people want to tell her that she just wasn't, you know, a good enough mother. Or she just wasn't paying enough attention or, you know, whatever. But she fully has, you know, after years of like talking to psychologists and uh, she's fully rejected that. She says, no, I did everything I could to be there for him. And he, he hid this from us. Yeah. Like if he, and that's what she's saying. If someone wants to hide something from you, they can hide it from you. They can hide it from you. Terrifying. It is terrifying. So it's kind of the question of, you know, can someone truly fake love and stuff like that? Because seemingly the evidence would suggest certainly within that case of dark mode, well, that's up to other readers, but within I'm a little bit of a moral quandary in terms of exactly, it wasn't a clear kind of answer. And I like that because that's the best sort of uh, subject matter going on. Actually, you know, the question that I want to end with, and I've um, allocated some time because I, this, is a, this is a pretty important question for you in terms of um, your sort of bodily journey, crux of the show, uh, what sort of uh, period have you encountered in your life that, or your widely vocation that sort of uh, made you doubt or or give up a little bit? But you've mentioned, and I think you mentioned in the beginning or the answer to the first question in terms of um, the chronic fatigue syndrome and how that's sort of um, obviously ongoing. But, uh, you know, I'd really like to, and I'm sure this would really like to hear as to how that's impacted um, your writing, particularly within, you know, writing, undertaking a, a long-form, full-length novel, you know. What, what's What's been going on with that? Like how sort of uh, trying has that has that been? It's interesting because it's actually the opposite. I had a lot more doubts and fought a lot more with the concept of giving up before I got sick. So, oh, you know, my name is Revenge. Mm. It took me nine years. From when I started it to when it got published, it took me nine years. And it changed a lot in that time. And there were, and I wrote that manuscript. And then I wrote a whole other manuscript that didn't get published. Um... And then I was working on sort of My Name is Revenge, which came out of the original manuscript. They're quite different. Um, and I was sort of starting How to Be Australian at that time. So I, I remember distinctly, uh, I think I think my creative ambition, not my creativity, I want to make a distinction there. Mm. But my creative ambition was causing me a lot of anxiety and depression because I was putting all this time and all this effort into this thing that I was like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be good enough. I don't know if I'm ever going to get published. I don't know if I'm ever going to meet any of my goals. I don't know if my time and effort that I'm putting into this is ever going to pay off because I was focusing on the ambition part of that, which is, which is natural to do. When I got sick, everything in my life was stripped away, effectively. But I was in the middle of these creative projects. And so when I was well enough, and, you know, those first couple of years, I'm literally talking about pockets of like 15, 20 minutes where I had the mental clarity 
and the physical capacity to sit at my desk and write. It was such a relief to be doing something that mattered to me. Mm. So from that point, it you know, it wasn't about even getting published or or anything because I had been I had been removed from the world. I was yep. I was I bystander to to the rest of the world. So my creativity at that point was such a relief. It was such it actually helped keep my mental health intact that I had this thing that still meant something to me when so many other things that were meaningful had been taken away. It was this thing I could do at home alone in the quiet. So it was it was a comfort. And like you know, I think I got published when I did because I had put in the skill development time. Like it's not because I got sick and I changed my attitude. Like I think I would have, I think my name is Revenge and How to Be Australian would have gotten published regardless of whether I was sick or not. I think Dark Mode would have gotten written a lot faster um, because, you know, How to Be Australian came out in 2020, Dark Mode came out almost four years later. Um, so, and that's sort of the gap of the years that I lost mm. in terms of the projects that I started before I got sick and then were able to keep working on. And then when I started Dark Mode and and, and how, how long it took me. Um, but yeah, the, the illness made me so grateful for my creativity made me so grateful for my creativity and um completely changed my perspective so yeah an interesting answer in terms of um my name is revenge kind of being the long gestation period the 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 period of um self-doubt and kind of coming through to to that and then and then and then um you know um having um chronic fatigue syndrome at the same time with you know battling with COVID and sort of lockdown, um, but then that kind of served to kind of make you almost celebrate the creativity and enable you to to go on. How good is that? I mean, that's just, yeah, that's, that's so good to, to to hear that that's how it went down, actually. Yeah, oh, thank you. Yeah. Look, um, once again, third time um, we've spoken, second time on the podcast, but it's just always an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Ashley. You're such a good human and it's just always so good to talk to you and see you out and about and what you're doing with writing New South Wales and um, listen to you and James's, um, Ashley and James' stay at home show as well uh, of your own podcasting endeavours as well. It's an absolute pleasure. Oh, well, thank you so much. And thank you for supporting authors and for your just keen interest in, in literature and writing and, you know, the book world. It's, it's wonderful. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Ashley. Well, there we go, everyone. There you have it. That was the first episode for 2023's The Right Way podcast lineup with the absolutely delightful Ashley Collagen Blunt discussing with me her uh, debut crime fiction novel, Dark Mode. So huge thanks to Ashley Collagen Blunt discussing with me Dark Mode on the show, uh, being the first guest of the year. Um, couldn't think of a better person to discuss that with and to celebrate that uh, 2023 milestone. I don't know if a milestone applies to being the first of the year, but I'm going to say it does. So yeah, huge thanks to Ashley, uh, especially for being so candid about her uh, balancing her chronic fatigue syndrome with her long form writing as well. So it's not something you hear about that often. It's an absolute privilege to be able to discuss that with her on the program tonight. Uh, so yeah, can't thank her enough for being the first guest of 2023, discussing with me everything dark mode, as well as her writing sort of vocation and how she's gotten to where she was. So third time I've talked to her, always a pleasure. Looking forward to the next time uh, down the track. But in the interim, while I'm in a thank you mood, thank you so much to you, dear listener. Yes, I'm talking to you, dear listener, with me, my voice in your ear region. Thank you so much much for listening to this particular episode of the right way podcast program as well as giving a cheeky follow on spotify 
subscribe or on Apple if you haven't already. Yes, the show is now on Apple Podcasts, Apple iTunes as well, and uh, might be expanding into the Amazon field as well in the fullness of time. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Give a cheeky follow on Spotify if you haven't already. Be sure to go back and look at that as we like to refer to every Prolific Brain back up a log of content there for you with an endless array of talented, insanely talented, absolutely utterly delightful people, writers and great sort of creators that have been on the program over the past, you know, two and a half uh, odd years. Yeah, anyway. Plenty of episodes for those that have only just uh, happened across the program to go back and listen to. But in the interim, yes, one final thank you to Ashley Collage and Blunt for discussing with me Dark Mode on the show tonight. Thank you to you, to you for listening to this episode, I should say. Check out the back catalogue. There's a few more episodes coming out this year. I have been winding down to answer your unasked questions. Reason being is because I've been speeding up with my own sort of long form writing there as well. And I'm a man of only two arms. I can only juggle so much. Uh, I'm not particularly known for my uh, superlative juggling capabilities. So yeah, please don't uh, hold that against me. But yes, got a few more eps coming up. Keep you guessing as to them, but be sure to follow on the social medias of at the right way podcast program or at the right way podcast, I should say, is the Instagram handle as well as at Samuel Elliott author. That's two L's, two T's uh, to check out all the latest and greatest stuff going on with the show and with my own writing as well but in the interim I bid you a absolutely lovely evening and thank you so much